in the beautiful West 7th neighborhood of St. Paul, Minnesota, you're listening to the Capital City Podcast. Thanks again for being here at Capital City Church. I wanted to briefly introduce my good friend Darius over here. Um, feel free to start making your way up when you get a chance. Um, I met Darius about two years ago within a court with Dan Moose. He's the official like church planting trainer within the Evangelical Free Church, of which we are a part. And so uh, Darius and I went through our, our training together, all sorts of stuff. You know, how do you vision cast and like, you know, build your, your church plant launch team? I mean, just thing. We did that all together. So I almost feel like we were in like high school together and now we've like gone out into the world or something so i'm just so glad to have him he's a, a regular attender and elder at antioch church in northeast one of one of the earlier free church church plants um what 15 years ago or so uh 10 10 going oh, on 10. 11 yeah going on 11. okay sounds good uh cool i'll let you say more about yourself but i just wanted to say let's give him a round of applause thank you for being here yeah my name is darius hubbard uh I'm on the leadership team at Antioch Community Church. Uh, we located in Northeast, and we actually were a church plant over 10 years ago uh, from Hope downtown. And so, uh, yeah, it's great to be here. Just want to give you guys a warning. If you have any complaints, I want to hear them. So please email me at jordan at capitalcity.org. <laughs> you can send all your complaints there. I want to hear those. So, uh, so over the last uh, few weeks, you guys have been going through the study, listening to various uh, preachers, uh, I believe predominantly African-American uh, preachers. Um, and so my goal today is kind of hopefully, kind of, I don't know exactly what all they talked about, but hopefully my goal is today is kind of wrap everything you've been hearing about and kind of like, what do we do now? Like kind of moving that ball forward and like, what should we do now with that? So we're going to be looking at Colossians chapter 4. Actually, uh, in you guys' bulletin, there is um, some notes for you guys to follow along the sermon, just in case you need that. So uh, our main point today, we're going to be talking about prayer, and specifically uh, how prayer prepares to engage the world around us. And that's really what we're going to talk about today. Um, Colossians, just a little bit about Colossians. Uh, the book of Colossians was written around AD 60, 61, uh, during Paul's first imprisonment in Rome. And Paul wrote this letter uh, to the church of Colossae, and he had received a report of how the church had was dealing with the struggle of dealing with a lot of false teachers. Um, they were preaching how Christ wasn't really the deity. Um, and so he wrote this letter, and the main focus of his letter was the Christ preeminence, um, how Christ is sufficient in all things. Paul uh, presented Christ as the center of the universe, an active creator, recipient due to him taking on human flesh. And chiefly, Christ was the visible image of the invisible God, containing within himself the fullness of deity. If you put together, you're like, well, what is the application of the book of Colossians? The application of the book of Colossians is that Christ, our view of Christ impacts the way we engage the world around us. So if I have a skewed view of Christ, I'm gonna have a skewed view of how I post to interact with the world around me. And so that's really what Paul was really pushing his churches. Let's hit these points of dealing with these false teachers and what they're teachings, and let's push you forward in what Christ calls us to do. So uh, the book of Colossians, I'm gonna uh, read it starting in verse one. Actually, before I read it, I'm, I'm gonna pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for today. We thank you uh, for the opportunity to hear your word. I ask that you decrease me, Lord, that your anointing may flow through, flow through, that they don't hear me, but they hear you. 
and we may take something from your word and apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Colossians chapter 4. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and, and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. And at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am a prisoner, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of your time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that ye may also know how you ought to answer each person. So, we really want to focus on uh, verses 2 through 6, but you can't focus on that without hitting the big problem with verse 1, which a lot of people skip over, especially today. So, Paul uh, starts this book off addressing, really, he bond bondservants, uh, the Greek translation for slaves. He uh, starts this scripture out um, addressing this problem of slavery, a subject that is very difficult, uh, especially for the evangelical church today to address. Um, and it's a difficult thing for people to reconcile with it being mentioned in the Bible, whereas in the New Testament or in the Old Testament. Um, I find out there's really three reasons why there's a problem with the church speaking about slavery in the Bible. Uh, the first one is um, it's difficult for people that are a part of a people group who have dealt with the issue of slavery in their lives. They are survivors, and they deal with the continuous effect of slavery, even though it's have been abolished. The second reason I find is that People who took part in the atrocities with slavery stated that they were a Christian, or if they were Christians, they sat back idly and didn't say anything. The third reason why people have this issue with slavery being in the Bible is uh, people feel that Christianity was only introduced to Africans or Africa due to the transatlantic slave trade, which if you ever want to read a good book about the history of the Christian faith in Africa. Uh, you read a book, it's called How Africa Shaped the Christian Mind. Um, it's a book written by Thomas C. Oden. Uh, and really those two, that third thought process about Africa was, I mean, Christianity was only introduced through the transatlantic slave trade. Really you'll find that issue, mostly which they are becoming really big in Minneapolis, around Minneapolis and the Twin Cities, is you'll find it if you ever run into a group called the Black Hebrewites and the Nation of Islam. Those would be the two groups that really push that idea. So Paul picks up in this verse, and he's talking about this. So to understand verse 1, we're going to uh, take a little bit of time. I'm going to spew out a whole bunch of history and facts, so just bear with me until we get into our scripture verse. So a little history of this first verse. We're going to break up verse 1, and we're going to talk about it into three different parts before we get into our main text. Uh, this first part of this verse, uh, masters treat your bond servants. Is uh, bond service is another word for slave, as I said earlier. Bond service is uh, translated from Greek, Greek, the word doulos, which means one who is subservient to, uh, who is subservient to, and entirely at the disposal of his master, a slave. Other translations use the word slave or servant. Um, so you, when you think of slavery in biblical days. Uh, you break up the world into time periods. We have something that's called, in the Bible days, this Bible time period is what we call the ancient world. Um, so the ancient world really took up uh, the time space of 3000 BC to really 399 AD. 
So when you look at that time, really Rome occupied most of the known world that we knew about at that time. Um, and slavery, the thing about Rome and the Romans and slavery is they had no respect of person. And it was really due to, it was really more of an economic slavery. If you couldn't pay your bills, we put you into slavery. You owed your neighbor something, he tell the officers, they'll put you into slavery, some type of debt. Here's a little couple facts about uh, Roman slavery. In, Rome, in Roman times, the term boss-saving or slave could refer to someone who was voluntarily serving others, but it usually referred to one who uh, was held in permanent position of servitude. Under Roman law, a bond servant was considered the owner's property. During the time of Jesus and the first century church, as much as one-third of the Roman population were slaves, and another one-third formerly was slaves. So it was never something for the whole population to hold a really a grudge against. It was a known thing. People were in servitude. People got out of servitude. Some people served their entire life by choice and some by force. If you were convicted of a crime in Roman days, you even, you became a slave, you, even, you served in the mimes, or you was put on the gallows. Uh, even the Jews owned slaves because it was a common practice. Even back to early Judaism, they came from slavery. So it was a common issue that Moses and even really the prophets dealt with the Israelites about stop thinking like slaves, stop treating other people like slaves. We put in these new practices. So it was something that was commonly known to these people. Uh, the Mosaic law and Christ and the New Testament and the New Testament writers really pushed the church to be countercultural, really pushed the people of Israel to be countercultural. Um, they pushed them against the norms and the treatment of disfranchised and hurt and lost and broken people. And they really tried to push them in subtle ways to be better than the systems that they came from and the systems that they knew. So when we hear of ancient world slavery, or when we see slavery mentioned in the Bible, we can't put our modern day concepts of slavery because it's totally different. We can't think of the transatlantic slave trade, and when we talk about biblical slavery, the transatlantic was a brutal part of history. And it was something that was really different from ancient world slavery. So what about the modern world? What does um, oppression and slavery look like in the modern world or the middle world? It's called the middle to modern world, and that's from 400 A.D. to 1499. Some people go up, up into around 1800, but it really depends. So uh, this is where we really take part in the major slave trade of, that we know of today. So uh, a few numbers about that. It is known that around, let's say, 600 AD is really a slave trade we really don't hear much about. It's something called the Arab slave trade or the Islamic slave trade. We don't hear too much about that. Uh, a few numbers about that. The Islam was formed in um, around 600 AD, um, and then Islam moved into Africa about 614. They were fleeing some oppression and moved into Africa about 614. Um, by the 10th century, uh, century about nine, between 900 and 1000, Islam, the Islamic slave trade started in Sahara and the Central Africa. It's estimated that is, uh, the Islamic slave trade took about 1 million European Christians and sold them into slavery. 
um, and they really used the uh, barbarian Muslim pirates through raids on the coastal towns from Italy to Spain to Portugal to France, England, and the Netherlands. Um, it's estimated through historians about 5 million Eastern Africans was put into slavery and transported by Muslim slave traders via the Red Sea, the Indian Ocean, the Sahara Desert, and they were shipped off to other parts of the world. If you do a little history about, particularly about going further east, if you look at India and you history, you do a little history search about Africans, tribes that was once brought to India on slave ships, but they actually got away. They're actually still living in India. Um, and they faced a lot of oppression uh, there as well. 1472, the Portuguese joined the slave trading in, in Benin. 1502 was the first mention of African slaves in the colonies. 1518, the Spanish crown issues licenses for slave trading. 1619, the first official slaves arrived in Jamestown. In 1650 to 1860, it's estimated between 10 and 15 million Northwest coastal African people were enslaved and transported to the Americas. So what do we, what do we think about the current era? And we, when we think about slavery in the current era, what are some of the things that's happening there? So the current era really takes place between the 19th and 20th century. That's about 1801 to 2000. June 19th, 1856, slave, uh, slave trading was abolished, but not slavery itself. President Abraham Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation on January 1st, 1863. The proclamation declared, that all persons held as slaves within the rebellious states are and henceforth shall be free. Anybody in here ever heard of Juneteenth? There's a big, it's usually a big celebration here. Um, it typically happens for a number of years. It was happening in North Minneapolis. Um, this is where this comes from. It's really, uh, it's the African-American Independence Day. And the reason behind why we say that it's come from June 19th, 1865, the Emancipation of the of the, the Emancipation Proclamation finally reached slave, uh, setting that the slavery uh, was finally reached enslaved Africans throughout the former Confederate states in America. So it, even though in 1863 it happened, President Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation, it did not even reach southern, all of the southern states until 1865. And that's why we call it Juneteenth for June 19th. We celebrate our independence. Uh, on April 5th, 1876, is the first session in Mississippi. During the Reconstruction period, Mississippi, anybody ever heard the term of someone calling police pigs? Anybody know where that term comes from? Southern states. In 1876, uh, it started with Mississippi during the Reconstruction uh, government. The state legislation revised the state criminal code. So they said, well, slaves are going to be free. We can't hold them by law anymore. They low, uh, the new pig, they called it the pig law. The new pig law lowered the dollar threshold for what constituted grand larceny. An offense punishable by up to five years in prison 
from $25 to $10. More drastic still, the law provided that stealing a hog, a pig, a shout, a cow, a calf, a yearling, a steer, a bull, sheep, a lamb, goat, or kid of the value of $1 or more will be punished as grand larceny. This law was blatantly racist in the, in the targeting of cattle and swine theft because during that time, stealing was, a, they called it a stereotypical Negro behavior. And whites who owned the majority of the cattle and swine, this was perpetuated by the leading, uh, by leading the laws. And if you were accused, you were guilty. So this pig law is me being a white owner of a pig, and I say, this former slave of mine or whoever it was, African-American that once was a slave, he stole a pig from me. You would get accused by a white person at a time, you automatically going to jail. He spent five years in prison. And what they would do is they created also, on top of the pig laws, they created something called the leasing laws. Anybody ever heard of the prison leasing laws? Prison leasing laws were, during that time of slavery was abolished, I accused a former slave of some kind or African-American of stealing my pig. They go to jail for five years. The prisons would then lease them to the former masters. The prisons would rent them out. And if you look up a lot of people, a lot of documentation of former slavery, they said in some conditions, it was worse than slavery. When you were a slave, you were considered property. They wanted to keep you alive for the most part. They needed you to tend to the work. But when they ran into out, it was barbaric treatment. They can kill you and just, we'll pay 10 more dollars, send me a new prisoner. So they had these leasing laws where you would get sent to jail. Uh, Lynching, lynching uh, was a method of, of social and racial control meant to terrorize black Americans into submission and into an inferior racial caste position. They became widely practiced in the U.S. roughly from 1877 to as late as 1968. Um, it's documented that 4,084 4, racial terror lynchings in 12 southern states and 300 in other states. Uh, they have been documented through sources such as newspapers, articles, postcards, and other historical records. Um, I went to this thing, uh, Transform Minnesota puts on uh, this racial reconciliation trip where they get a group of African-American um, of, and people of color, um, leaders and pastors and church members, and they pair them up with um, a white person and you take a trip down south. For five days, four days, you go on this trip and you visit all of these historic sites together and you kind of walk through it together as brothers and sisters and you learn about the history. Um, one of these places we visit was the Lynching Museum. Um, they go in there and they have these, they have these big brass pillars and it has names or it has, or if it does, it has unnamed because they couldn't, they don't, they didn't know the names of the people. And it's just rows of names of people who was lynched by county. And it's just this museum full of rows of lynching. And some of them are, uh, when you walk in, they're probably about, probably not as short as me because I'm not normal height, but they're probably about height length. Uh, so they like right at headlight when you go in there. But as you go deeper into the lynching museum, they get higher and higher, where it actually looks like hanging bodies, just a sea of hanging bodies. And as you go around there, they actually, it was very interesting. I found one of them was the lynching in Duluth in 1920. Anybody ever heard about that one? 
three African-American men were, uh, were accused of raping a white uh, girl, about 19. Um, they were beating and lynched in front of a mob of 10,000 people in Duluth. And they actually took pictures, made postcards, and passed it around. They, it was later found out through after they was killed that they examined her. She was not raped, and it actually wasn't those guys uh, who actually, um, they was actually innocent. So when we break up these three verses, the beginning verse, masters treat your bondservants justly and fairly. As believers living in an unjust world, um, Paul is really pushing the people and requiring them that it's not only that we show justice to the people around us, but that we show, we, we be equal and show equality to all. Paul is pushing them to go beyond what they used to in this culture. Paul urges them to be countercultural and calling the believers to be faithful to their promises and agreements. Require them to don't put too much burden on the people. It was known in the ancient world slavery, like you just tax them out. Uh, you look at the story of Joseph being in jail, like they really just worked them day and night to the bone. And Paul is asking them, like, be countercultural. He's like, make it easier for them, even if they're at the lowest positions. If we look at the second part of verse one, he, he answers this question. So why should we as believers treat people better? Why should we treat them justly? Paul says, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. The reason for why we should treat our servants, speaking to the church, the reason why they should treat their servants is because they also are servants. Or servants of someone to someone that is greater. He said this is even more pressing when it's uh, servants in their time who are of the faith. Even though they serve in different positions, like we all serve the same master. So to summarize, what's the point of all this information? So slavery, the point of it, slavery existed before the transatlantic slave trade and before America got involved in it. But at the same time, we can't forget the brutality. The difference is why we don't hear about much of these other slaveries and why we don't focus on them is America participated in one of the most brutal slaveries that there was. And it was really isolated. Uh, the isolated slavery of the West Africans. Um, it's so important because the Bible does not condone this. Even though it's mentioned in the Bible, the Bible does in no way condone slavery. But it reminds us. The Bible constantly reminds us, why are these horrible things happening? And it reminds us time and again, Moses dealt with the people in divorce. He says time and time again, it's because of your hearts. So these horrible things existed because of the hearts of men. Paul speaks to people who are used to an ancient world slavery culture and context and urges them to think counterculturally. We see Christ while again, like, how long am I going to have to deal with you? Your hearts are not right. So what is Paul urging us to do as we go on to the next text? Paul starts off verse two and he says, continue steadfast in prayer. For real, you introduce us to slavery and you tell us to pray. Like, come on, Paul. As comfortable Christians, sometimes it can, 
it, we tend to look at prayer as what we do after we hear about a plight. I'm hearing about the coronavirus. Let's pray. I heard about my friend is sick. After we get information about a need and a struggle or a hardship or even a celebration, we pray. But if we look at what Paul is stating in this scripture, he says prayer is actually something else. Jesus tells us that prayer was the driving. If we look at the life of Jesus, we see that prayer was the driving force before, during, and after any work that he did. Before he fed the multitude, what did he do? He prayed. During the midst of when he was feeding them, he prayed to the Father. After he did the work, he said, I must go pray and be with my Father. So prayer was not just something, a need-based thing. It was the, it was the preparation before everything we did for the Father. So the scripture today shows us that prayer prepares us and engages us for what we need to do and what needs to be done in three ways. We're going to look at those. The first way we find in verse 2, prayer prepares the head to engage the world around it. Paul says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Paul reminds the church that prayer is not a spare of the moment thing or a way to be more disciplined. It is a continual work that one does with open eyes to the world around them. Spurgeon says this, Christian prayers are measured by, Christian prayers are measured by weight, are not, are not, measure, uh, are not measured by length, but by weight. Many of the most prevailing prayers have been short as though they were strong. A. Clark says this about prayer. Prayer is not designed to inform God, but to give man a sight of his misery, to humble his heart, to excite his desire, to inflame his faith, to animate his hope, to raise his soul from earth to heaven, and to put him in the mind that there is his father, his country, and his inheritance. So is God, if God is all-knowing, all-powerful, all seeing and everywhere. Prayer does not open his mind to our plights, but connects our head and our mind to what God is already doing and where he already is. So what are the next thing we see? Paul says that in verse three, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account for which I am a prisoner. The second thing prayer does is prayer prepares and engages the heart to sympathize, empathize with the plight of others. Paul reminds the church that praying specifically for his needs, understanding the desires of his heart and understanding the condition of his person. We don't pray for things we don't care about. I pray for my kids because I care about them. I pray for this church fund because I care about this church fund. I have a relationship with Jordan. Hebrews 13 and 3 tells us, remember those who are in prison as though you are in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. 
So we must ask ourselves and ask our hearts. Are we praying for wisdom and guidance, asking the Lord, where do you want me to get involved and help my brothers and sisters who are created in your image and suffering? We got to ask when we praying, ask for God's heart. Where, are you, where do you want me to go? What do you want me to do? Give me the heart for these people. The third thing we see in verse 4. Paul says, that I, may, that, it, that I may make it clear which how I ought to speak. So what is the third thing that prayer prepares us to do? Prayer prepares and directs the hands to get involved with engaging the issues around us. Getting involved with the issues around us first starts with prayer, which prepares us for the work ahead, giving strength, direction, boldness, and endurance. If we take an example for Jesus, let's look at Jesus' life. You can write these down. I didn't actually put them in your uh, notes. We talked about how prayer sets us up before, during, and after. We look at the ministry of Jesus. We see him praying before ministry. If you look at Mark 1, 35-39, you see Jesus is praying for guidance. If you look at Mark 9 and 29, we see Jesus praying during ministry for empowering. We see him praying after in Matthew 14 and 23, Mark 6 and 46, and Matthew 26 and 36. That's when he asks God, he asks Jesus, he asks God to restore me. I have done all this work. I need you to restore me in prayer. Verses five and six, he says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of your time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. The previous verses highlight the importance of Christians to commit to a personal prayer life. Verses 5 and 6 shows us the importance of practically, practically living out a, a countercultural lifestyle and interacting with the world around us. We must seize every opportunity to do good, speak wisdom, and pray for others. Uh, there is a saying amongst older African Americans to younger generations when speaking of those who came before you. Uh, they typically say, are we speaking of Martin Luther King or someone says, he really didn't do much. Like he could have did this or Rosa Parks could have did this. They could have sent there for this. An older generation person will say, you stand on their shoulders. This means we are where we are today because of the blood, sweat, and tears of those who lived before us, who died, who died and fought for freedom. I think it's appropriate across cultures. You got to ask yourself, how are you going to help those of color and, and how are they going to stand on your shoulders? So what about the 21st century? What are some stats today? Just a couple stats for us today is one in three black men can expect to go to prison in their lifetime. The ACLU documented that 3,278 people are serving life without parole for nonviolent, petty, or misdemeanor offenses. 65% 
are black, 18% are white, and 16% are Latino. It's estimated that 1% of the U.S. prison population, approximately 20,000 people, are falsely convicted, the majority being blacks. 19.7 million Americans, 12 and older, battle substance and disorders in 2017. Half of the world's populations are in poverty, about 3 billion people living on less than $2.50 a day, 1 billion of them being children. African Americans and Hispanics make up approximately 32% of the U.S. population. They comprise 56% of the incarcerated people based on a survey in 2015. If African Americans and Hispanics were incarcerated at the same rates as whites, prison and jail populations would decline by 40%. Students of color face harsher punishment in schools than their white peers, leading to higher numbers of youth of color incarcerated. Black and Hispanic students represent more than 70% of those involved in in-school related arrests or referrals to law enforcement. Currently, African-Americans make up two-fifths uh, and Hispanics one-fifth of confined youth today. African-American juvenile youth are about 16% of, of the youth population and 30% of their cases are moved to criminal court and 58% of African-American youth are sent to adult prisons. Black kids are 10 times more likely to die from gun violence than whites. African-American women are three times more likely than white women to be incarcerated. White Hispanic women are 69% more likely than whites to be incarcerated. The U.S. Sentencing Commission stated in a federal system Black offenders receive sentencing that are 10% longer than white offenders for the same crimes. So in conclusion, what Paul is saying here, prayer is vital and it allows us to do th three things. It allows us to look inward and recognize our sin and that we are no better than anyone else. It allows us to look upward praying to God, asking for forgiveness, salvation, and a changed heart. Open my mind, clear my eyes. It allows us to give thanks to Christ for the work on the cross, forgiving our sins and bringing us into relationship with God through faith in Christ. It allows us to look outward, praying to the Lord Jesus, how, when, and where are you calling me to invite people to you and get involved? We'll end with this quote from Adam Clark. Adam Clark uh, was born in 1762. Uh, he died in uh, August 26th of 1832. He was a British Methodist theologian and biblical scholar. He was one of the early critics of slavery. In his commentary of Isaiah 58 and 6, he writes, let the oppressed go free. How can any nation pretend to fat to fast or worship God at all, or dare to profess that they believe in the existence of such a being while they carry on the slave trade. 
and traffic in the souls, blood, and bodies of men. O ye most, uh, o ye most flactitious of knaves, and worst of hypocrites, cast off at once the mask of religion, and deepen not your endless perdition by professing the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, while ye continue in this traffic. Colossians is pushing us to ask ourselves, are we going to continue to sit back silently while people's souls are being trafficked through mass incarceration, through appalling statistics in the U.S.? How are you calling me to love those next to me who are suffering? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word. We ask that you reveal to us, Lord. Give us a heart to prayer that you open up our minds. You open up our hearts that we may know and see where you want us to get involved, how you want us to get involved. We thank you for the work of, on the cross that you saved and redeemed us. Help us to take your word wherever we go. And don't let us sin idly and silently while people who are created in your image are suffering around us. We thank you. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. This is a project of the Capital City Church in the West 7th community of St. Paul, Minnesota. Find us on Instagram at Capital City Church STP or visit our website for more information at capitalcitystpaul.com. Paul.com.